The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Hosea 11. Uh, Today is the last Sunday of Lent. It's also called Palm Sunday uh, because on this day we remember Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem for what would be the final week of his life before his crucifixion. And if you know that story, you know that he entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Uh, Kings in ancient Israel rode on donkeys during times of peace. Horses were for war. Donkeys were ridden in peacetime. And, And so as Jesus comes in riding on this donkey, the people come out to greet him and meet him. And they come waving palm branches, much like the ones that you have in your seats. Palm branches were like a national symbol of victory. It was almost a, had the connotation of like Israel's flag, if you will. So they come waving these symbols of, of victory. And so the picture here is that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as a victorious king who brings peace. And the people, he's the people's hope. They're putting their hope in him. And you can even hear their hope because they cry out, Hosanna, it's Hebrew word, Hoshana, it just means to save. Here you come as a king who brings peace. Here you come, we're declaring you're victorious. You are our hope, all our hope is in you. Come and, and save us. And as Jesus enters the picture, you can literally hear hope echoing off the pages of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. My question this morning is, can we hear the same hope echo off the pages of Hosea? Like as we have journeyed through this book of Hosea during Lent, we have not seen a whole lot of hope here. We have seen the sin of God's people laid bare in Hosea chapter 4. We have seen that that sin deserves God's righteous wrath in Hosea chapter 5. And although we saw the people called to repent in Hosea 6, in chapter 7, last week we saw that their repentance itself is not even real. It's false. And so we're left asking, is there any hope for God's Gomer-like people? I call them a Gomer-like people because remember, this whole book began with God using Hosea's personal marriage to Gomer as a picture of his own relationship with his people. Hosea was called to marry Gomer, and he was a faithful husband to her, and she was an unfaithful bride who went after many other lovers. And eventually, she landed herself in slavery to these lovers. And God takes that picture and says, that's what my relationship with my people is like. The same thing has happened here. I've been a faithful husband, a faithful God to my people, and yet they have gone after other lovers, after other gods and now they are enslaved to their sin like that's said rather explicitly for instance hosea chapter 5 and verse 4 their deeds do not permit them to return to their god they're trapped they're enchained by their deed by sin their deeds do not permit them to return to their god for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the lord they're slaves to sin it's so like we're left asking, is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for us? Is there gospel hope for gomers like us? As we've journeyed through this series simply entitled God, Gomer, and the Gospel, I think that for many of us, we've heard the truths about God, and we've said, yes, 
confidently believe that. We've heard the truths that we're just like Gomer, and we've gone, yes, I confidently believe and know and experience that. But when we hear the truths of the gospel, I fear that we do not have confidence or belief that that gospel good news is for Gomers like us. Shades. I want you to have rock-solid confidence. Rock-solid gospel hope. Not just in the truth about who God is, not just in the truth about who we are as his rebellious people, but in the good news of what he's done. I want you to have rock-solid hope that that gospel good news is for you. And so... Today, on Palm Sunday, when the sound of hope should fill the air, I ask of Hosea, is there any hope for us to hear? So we listen to the words of the is there any hope for us to hear from Hosea? That's our question, and this is why we are in Hosea chapter 11, to hear what hope for gomers like us sounds like. It's a sound that will give you rock-solid confidence. And it begins to echo off the page in Hosea 11, starting in verse 1. Look at it with me. Let's, let's read this and listen together for the sound of gospel hope. Hosea 11 and verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Immediately, we hear words of hope. And what does it sound like? It sounds like love. God is, God is looking back right here at when he first formed his people into a nation. When he first formed the nation of Israel. They had been slaves for 400 years in the land of Egypt, and God rescues them. He redeems them. He brings them out to make them into a nation, a people for himself. And even in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, he calls this nation my firstborn son. Like, like this new nation to God was like his child, and he... He loved his people like they were his child. Can you hear their hope? The hope for gomers like us, it sounds a lot like love, the love of a father for a child. If there is any hope for us to be had, it's got to be rooted in that this is who God is to us and toward us. If there's any hope for us to have, it can't be rooted in myself. I know I am gomer-like. and unfa- It's got to be rooted in God. It's got to be rooted in who God is and that he is a God who is a father to us. He's a God of love. It's got to be rooted in his character. And first and foremost, right here in Hosea 11, we are being told our God, this is who he is in his nature. He is a God of love. 1 John chapter, five, chapter 4 and verse 8 says that our God is love. This is who he is. And that is meant to fill us with hope. And I think it does, but only for a moment. Because even as we hear this truth about God, it doesn't take long for us to remember the truth about us as Gomer. Yeah, he's a God of love, but how could he ever love a Gomer like me? Like even as we hear this truth about who God is, it does not take long for us to shift from looking at his faithful love to looking back at our unfaithful rebellion. Because we're just like Israel. When they were called out of Egypt... When Israel was a child, loved my son, and out of Egypt I called my son. When Israel was called out of Egypt, it did not take long at all for them to prove unfaithful. Just look at verse 2. God says, the more they were called, the more they went away. 
They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. If you go back to the story of the Exodus, the people are barely out of Egypt. Like, they're like at the end of the driveway, okay? They're barely out of Egypt before they begin doubting the loving faithfulness of God. And at the base of Mount Sinai, they are already bowing down to a golden calf, worshiping idols, And even still, even in light of that unfaithfulness, God will go on to prove himself and prove his love for his people again and again. Just look at verses 3 and 4. He says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Even though they're going away constantly after Baals, even though they're burning sacrifices to other gods, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them. I bent down to them and fed them. God's describing his interactions with Israel all throughout their desert wanderings, all throughout their history. He says, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, I held their hand like a father holds the hand of a child that's learning to walk. I held their hand. When they stumbled, I healed their self-inflicted hurts. I picked them up. I set them back on their feet. Or to change the image, but to keep describing his compassion, in verse 4, God says, I've not only been like a faithful father, I've been like a gentle farmer. In verse 4, the image changes to that of a farmer with his animals. In Egypt, the people had been truly treated like animals, slaves. But God says, I'm different. I gently led you out with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I've eased your yoke. I've cared for you. I've literally fed you. I've condescended. I've bent down to serve you. He's proved himself and his love again again, but the more he has proven himself, the more they have gone away. Not acknowledging that it was God who taught them to walk and healed their hurts, but giving credit to their other lovers, to other gods. That's what they've done. That's what we've done. That's what I've done. And the consistent message that we've seen all throughout Hosea is that such rebellion like that justly deserves the righteous wrath of God. And verses 5 through 7 say in chapter 11 that that's exactly what's coming. God loved his people. They rebelled. He's continued to pour out his love. They've continued to rebel. And now wrath is coming. Not through slavery in Egypt again, but through something very similar, through exile in Assyria. Look at it with me. Verses 5 to 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent. They're bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Judgment. Righteous wrath. This, like this is what ultimately leaves us feeling hopeless. 
Because yes, yes, we have seen that our God, he is a God of love. But yes, we have also seen that we, like Israel, are Gomer-like people. We are bent on turning away. Turning away and putting our hope in other things aside from God. That's what the people are doing. At the end of verse 7, where he says they're bent on turning away, and though they call out to the Most High, that phrase right there, Most High, that's not the people calling out to God for help. That's them calling out to what they label as the Most High, Baal. We learned that back in chapter 7. They put Baal in the place of God and called him the Most High. God says, they don't turn to me. They don't return to me. They're putting their hope in their own version of the Most High. And God says, that version, Baal, he will not raise them up at all. He can't. He's not the Most High. He can't raise them up. He's on the same level, if not lower, than them. They're hopeless because they turn to things that cannot give them any hope. This is me. Like, this is me in this text. This ultimately leaves me feeling hopeless. Yeah, I got a God who's a God of love, but I know I'm a Gomer-like person bent on turning away and treating other things as if they are the most high who can save me. I wonder for you, what, what is it that you are prone to treat like it is the most high? Think about it. Search your own heart for you. What, what is the thing that you turn to and put all your hope in? The people are turning to Baal and putting all their hope in him. And we may not turn to Baal and put our hope in him, but we turn to many other things. And what God says is true of Baal is true of anything that we would call the most high in his place. That thing is not able to raise us up at all. So I end up feeling hopeless. God may be faithful, but I am not. And this is where I'm left asking, Hosea, is there any hope? for me to hear. I've confidently, I've, I've heard and confidently believed the truth about who God is. I've heard and confidently believed the truth that I am like Gomer. And that leaves me no confidence that there is gospel hope for me. Like on this Palm Sunday, when the sound of hope is supposed to fill the air, I ask of Hosea, is there any hope for us to hear? And he says, yes. He says it in verses 8 and 9. They are a resounding, yes, hear gospel hope in the words of God himself. God speaks in 8 and 9. Hear these words of hope. Verse 8, God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I actually think that last phrase should be, I will not come into the city. We'll see why in just a minute. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that says that. I am God and 
a holy one in your midst and I will not come into the city. Do you hear the hope that's here? It still sounds like love. The love of God that is more powerful than our Gomer-like rebellion. Yes, God loves his people. Yes, they have rebelled. Yes, their sin deserves righteous wrath. But God declares that's not how their story is going to end. He says he won't make Israel like Adma or Zeboim. Those are two cities that are in the valley, same valley, as some more famous cities you might recognize the name of, Sodom and Gomorrah. And along with Sodom and Gomorrah, Zeboim and Adma were completely destroyed in the righteous wrath of God. And so God is looking at his people and he says, I'm not going to enter your cities like that, Israel. It's true that I am holy and my holiness is an all-consuming fire. But I'm not going to enter into your cities in judgment and in wrath. No, wrath will not be his people's end where they feel his burning anger. No, what will be their end? They will feel the warmth of his compassion. Not, not his burning anger, but the warmth of his compassion. How? How's that going to I mean, that's, that's the lingering question, isn't it? Because they have sinned. They do deserve wrath, and it is coming. Like we just read that in verses 5 through 7. Wrath is coming. Verses 8 and 9 right here, they do not mean that the people won't experience God's wrath in exile. They will. That's going to happen. Assyria is coming. What verses 8 and 9 mean is that exile won't be their end. And the question becomes when and how. When will, if exile is definitely coming, when will the exile end? That's not going to be our end, so when will exile itself end? And how will it end? Because it shouldn't. Like, exile shouldn't come to an end for them or for us. They, we, are a people who are bent on turning away from the Lord, and so we deserve nothing but to be sent away. But God promises that's not your end. You will feel the warmth of my compassion. You will experience a love more powerful than all of your rebellion. You will hear the sound of gospel hope. When and how? Hosea answers both of those questions in verses 10 and 11. Look at it with me. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. When will exile end? When he roars. How will it end? When he roars. When he, listen, that's what's going to happen. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. That's from the south. And like doves from the land of Assyria. That's the north and the east from all directions, from everywhere they've been sent in exile. They're all going to come back home. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Exile won't be their end. The people will return to be at home with God. How and when? He's going to roar. Love is going to roar. And when love roars, God's people will hear the sound of their hope and come home. This is the how and the when of our hope. Do you hear it? 
This is the how and the when. Let's take those one at a time. This is the when of our hope. We're told that all of God's children shall come trembling back to him when he roars. Awesome. What does that mean? They're going to come back from exile when he roars. Well, is that... Is that a reference to the end of the Old Testament? At the end of the Old Testament, the people do return from exile. They do come back to the land. They do rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They do rebuild the temple. Is that what we're talking about? Is that when God roars? No. No, because even when you read the Old Testament, the, the, the cry at the end of the Old Testament that echoes over and over again is that the return the people experience does not remotely match up to what the prophets had said the return would look like. It's not even close. It's barely any of them that come back. The walls are okay. The temple makes people who saw the former temple weep because it doesn't live up to the glory and the grandeur when God's prophets had said the return will supersede anything you have seen yet to this moment. prophets, when they prophesied a return from exile, they must have been looking forward to something bigger. The authors of the New Testament also agree with that. The authors of the New Testament picture God's people as still being in exile. Us, now, the church, lives in exile. Just read 1 Peter. That's how he opens his letter to the elect exiles. That's, that's who we are. Until he roars. And the authors of the New Testament point forward to the true return from exile that will happen when Christ returns to make all things new, to bring his kingdom in full. Then we will fully and finally be at home with the Lord. This is when he will roar when he returns to make all things new. We shall hear love roar when he returns. But, but, the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. The good news of the gospel is that, that roar, the one that's coming, when he returns, make all things, that roar is already breaking into the present. Yes, it's true that we will hear the, the full roar of his love when he returns, but that sound of him making all things new is already echoing into the present through the doorway of the empty tomb. You want to hear the sound of our hope. You want to hear the roar of, of love. You want to know how. This is our second question, right? Not just when, but how. You want to know how God will bring exile to an end and not give us the, wrath, the burning wrath that we deserve, but, but make us feel the warmth of his compassion. Like you, you want to know how his, his love will be more powerful than our rebellion. You, you want to hear how the roar of of love breaks into the present, come to the cross and the empty tomb. Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this world and lived a fully, perfectly faithful life where all unfaithful gomers failed. 
The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2 actually quotes from Hosea 11. He quotes the very first verse of Hosea 11, Out of Egypt I called my son. He takes that phrase and he applies it to Jesus because Jesus, when he was an infant, his family went to Egypt for just a moment and then they came back out. And Matthew goes, that's God calling his son out of Egypt. Why does he say that? Because Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is living out the entire story of God's people, only he's being faithful where we were faithless. He comes out of Egypt. He passes through the waters of baptism like the people passed through the Red Sea. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted like the people wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years and were tempted. And where they failed, he succeeds. He goes up on a mountain in the Gospel of Matthew and teaches, just like Moses went up and got the law. Matthew over and over again is pointing out to us, Jesus is living out the story of God's people, but faithful, where every gomer before him had failed. Why? So that he could go to the cross in the place of gomers, so that he could take the sin of every single gomer and the wrath that it deserved, and he could bear it in his body. He bore it there. He died our death, and he defeated it. He took all of sin, all of death, and all of the curse upon himself, and he ended it. How do I know? Because right after that, he started reversing it. He didn't stay dead. Three days later, he stepped out of the tomb. Through his death, he has put to an end sin and death and all the curse that it brought with it. The empty tomb is a guarantee of that. The empty tomb is the guarantee that death itself has been reversed. It's the guarantee that one day he will return to complete the reversal he began. The empty tomb is the beginning of Christ making all things new. It's the beginning of him making all things new that he will do when he returns. And right now, in the present, that making all things new is breaking in through the tomb. You can hear love roar right now. You can hear the sound of your hope from the empty tomb. Hear the lion of the tribe of Judah roar through that door. From the doorway of the empty tomb comes the guarantee of God's love for gomers like you and me. From the doorway of the empty tomb, there is bursting forth the warmth of his compassion for you to feel on your face. Coming forth from the doorway of the empty tomb, there is love more powerful than all of your rebellion. From the door of the empty tomb, oh shades, can you hear love's roar breaking into the present? You can know if you do. I told you at the beginning, I want you to have rock solid confidence rock-solid assurance that this gospel hope is for you. I'm telling you that it roars to you from the door of the empty tomb. Do you, you can know if you hear it. Because if you hear love roar through the resurrection of Christ, if you hear it, a miracle happens in you. Do you know what the miracle is? You come to the sound of his roaring. You come to him You want him. You desire him. 
That's a miracle. Like, do you want to know if you have heard love's roar? Do you want him? Do you desire him? Do you want to come to him? If you do, you've heard his roar. Because that's a miracle. No one naturally wants to come to Christ any more than they want to come to the sound of a lion roaring. Nobody naturally wants to come. No one. We've just been told we are all bent on wanting other things, on calling other things the most high. We read at the beginning of our time, Hosea 5 and verse 4, it's true of all of us. Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord their God. That sounds very similar to John chapter 3 and verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. We don't naturally love the light of Christ. We're naturally bent on other things, turned in on ourselves. No one naturally loves God. That's not our bent. And when he roars like a lion, our instinct is not to come, but to flee. That has been our instinct since Genesis 3. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, and they heard the sound of God. They didn't fly to him. They, they fled from him. That's our, it's been our instinct ever since. Like birds that scatter and flee when a lion roars, we fly from the presence of God. Unless... Unless he works a miracle in our hearts. The miracle of Hosea 11. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Watch for the miracle. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. The lion roars and the birds don't scatter and flee. They fly to the presence of the lion. That's a miracle. That's not natural. Whatever the movie The Lion King would have you believe, like the lion's not roaring and all the animals are like, yay, bow down to the lion. No, I've watched the Discovery Channel. That's not how the lion footage ends. This isn't normal. Birds don't naturally do this. No one does. And that's the point. A miracle has happened in you if you come to the sound of his roaring because now his roar sounds like love. Now it sounds like hope. If you hear love roar through the door of the empty tomb, you come to him. You want him. You desire him. A miracle has happened in you. Shades you can know. Rock solid confidence. You can know if you hear love roar. If you're here, you want to fly to him. It's a miracle. 
The Bible describes this as a miracle all over the place. Ephesians chapter 2 describes the miracle this way. It says, you were dead. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, and God brought about a resurrection in you. Brought you to life. Some miracle. You ever wondered what it would be like to be raised from the dead? You love Jesus? You have been raised from the dead. You were dead lying in a tomb labeled sin and transgressions, and Jesus called your name, and you breathed the breath of faith, and you stepped out. John chapter 3 describes this miracle as being born again. You didn't have anything to do with your first birth. You don't get any credit for your... Go try to take credit for your first birth with your mama. See if that works out for you. You don't have any credit for your second birth. Jesus in John chapter 3 says it's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you new life. 2 Corinthians 4 describes the miracle this way. You were blind. Blind. Not had dim sight. No, you were blind. And God shone a light, the light of the gospel into your heart, and you beheld the glory of Christ. Dead, brought to life. Born by the power of the Spirit. Blind and given sight. Those of us who were bent on turning away and unable to come to him, unable to repent. Repentance is a gift from the miracle. That's clear in 2 Timothy 2.25 that says, Repentance is a gift granted by God. If you have turned from your sin, that's a gift. If you've turned to him in faith, that's a gift. Philippians 1 and verse 29 says that it's been granted to us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are a gift from God that's brought us from death to life, given us new birth in Christ, given us new sight. A miracle shade called conversion has happened in you. We see him and we want him. This is how you can know if you hear love's roar. You can have rock solid confidence that there is gospel hope for gomers like you and me because God has done something to set us free. He has roared. Do do you hear love's roar? Like right here at the end of our time, let's, let's get really practical. Do you hear love's roar right now? You're like, how? I'll give you four ways. Do you hear love's roar right now as we worship together? Through worship. Shades, this is, this is why we worship together. Because God has called us to himself together as a people from the north, south, east, and west, he's called us together. As he roars for the return of his people. This is something we hear collectively, together. This is why we continually gather together. Because there is something that we hear together that we don't hear as individuals. Roar for his people to return to him. Self. This is the flip of what we saw back in, in verse 2 of this chapter. Isaiah chapter 11 and, and verse 2. If you remember, the more God called his people Israel, we were told the more they went away. Not came together as a people to him. They went away after idols. Idolatry emphasizes individualistic pursuit. They went after 
idols individualistically for self-serving reasons to get what they thought they wanted, what they thought that they needed, what they thought was best for them. In contrast, when we have heard love roar, we do not run individualistically to idols. We run collectively to the one who is truly the most high. We come together from the north, south, east, and west to hear love roar through song, through the word, through the table, through times of, of prayer. We gather as a people in the presence of God, not individualistically, just to get what, what I need or what I think is best for me. No, that is treating Christianity like idolatry. And there are many people and places that do that. There are many who treat corporate worship as if its purpose isn't corporate, but merely individualistic. There are many who treat corporate worship as if it's the a la carte section of a Mexican menu. I'll take these songs, but not these. I'll take this kind of preaching, but not that kind. The table, ah, take it or leave it. I don't need it. Prayer, prayer's my jam. Not past the pieces, not my jam. Shades. Don't try to customize love's roar to sound the way you want it. That leads to idolatry. I will, Robert. <laughs> Don't try to customize love's roar to sound the way you want it to. That leads to idolatry. No, instead, gather with God's people and hear the fullness of love's roar together, even in the things that you don't think you connect with or the things that you think don't affect you. They are having more of an effect on you than you think. Everything is shaping your heart. Your heart is being shaped simply by you being willing to listen for love's roar alongside of God's people instead of just seeking an individualistic experience. If you come here to seek an individualistic experience, that's shaping you. That's shaping your heart and your relationship with the Lord. That's shaping your heart and your relationship with one. But if you come here to seek the Lord together as a body in all these things we do together, that's shaping you. That you humbling yourself and entering even into the things that you maybe don't understand or maybe don't connect with as much, you're humbling yourself and saying, I want to hear you active in everything that we do together as your people because I believe you've called us together collectively as your people to hear the roar of your love. It is precisely the corporate experience of worship that our individual hearts need. Do you hear love's roar right now in worship not just in worship second do you hear love's roar right now through the word and we we saw back in the earlier verses of this chapter in verses three and four we saw god recounting the story of his love to his people how he led them out of egypt like a father a faithful father leading a son teaching a son to walk we he talked about it like a gentle farmer. He's recounting the story of his faithfulness to them. 
in order for them to hear, hear the roar of his love. That's what this word has been written for. This word is written so that we might read our story, the story of God with his Gomer-like people. We might read our story and hear the roar of God's love echo off its pages, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Have you heard that roar through the word this morning? Do you want to hear the roar of God's love every day? It can be heard here. It's here. It echoes off the pages. Shades. Hear love's roar in worship and in the word. By doing this, the third thing, by seeing what God has done. That's the emphasis in Hosea 11, verses 5 through 9, which talked about how the people's sin deserved wrath. But God gave good news that he will save his people from his wrath. This is God emphasizing what he has done for us in Christ. You want to hear love roar in worship and in the word? Come to the cross and the empty tomb and see what God has done. Remind yourself. This is why we sing about it. This is why we preach about it. Why we pray about it. We're reminding ourselves of what God has done. But that's not all. Fourth and finally, don't just see what God has done, but see all that he promises to do. That's how our passage ends in verses 10 and 11, is it not? Christ will return to bring to completion what he began by walking out of the tomb, namely making all things new. It's the promise of verse 10 and 11. The day will come when we will hear love's roar in full and we will fully and finally come home to him. And so, shades, we come together in worship. We come together to hear from this word again and again, not just what God has done, but the promises of what he will do. We come to hear our God roar forth the gospel for gomers like us. Come and hear it, Shades. Come and hear love's roar right now in worship, in word, in what he's done, in what he will do. On on this Palm Sunday, come and hear the hope that's in the air. Yes, the hope that's echoing off the pages of Hosea. For just as surely as Christ came in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just as surely as that, he will come again as our true king in true victory who brings true peace. This is our hope. Can you hear it? Can you hear Love's roar.